welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. All right, off to the races. Dr. Caparucci, how you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well, Thomas. I hope uh, everything's well. well. I mean, where you are right now today, everything's always beautiful. So for sure, lucky lucky dog here in the Caribbean today. With when uh, yeah, so it was interesting when we were warming up for our conversation. You referenced how the stuff we're going to talk about today. A lot of it stems from men not having deep relationships, and I was grateful because I'm here on a trip with all of my best friends from high school and we have been practicing kind of deep vulnerable conversations since then. So it made me think about that and how lucky I am to have a, a group of friends like that. You certainly are. I mean, but, but again, see, that's something that you have to cultivate. You have to continue to put invest time and energy and effort into those relationships. And when people don't invest that time, that is when they find themselves just isolated more often than not. Certainly. So, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming coming to the Bronovo Podcast. Welcome. And for the listeners today, uh, we're going to be discussing one of your books in particular, but also I would you know, love to hear about kind of overview of your work. So as an introduction, um, who, who are you and what is the kind of work that you do? Yes, I, I am Eddie Caparucci, and I am a licensed professional counselor, and I'm also a certified coach. Uh, what I do is I specialize in the treatment of sex and pornography addiction. So I work with men who are struggling in this area. My wife, who is part of uh, our ministry, she works with the women who have been betrayed. So together, we're working to help not just individuals, to heal, but we're also helping to restore marriages. Wonderful. And when you uh, describe or identify the the practices of ministry, um, so that does that involve some a faith based element, or what does that distinction uh, mean? Yes, it's that's that from, from a Christian perspective. Uh, however, we work with people from all faiths. Uh, we work with people who are agnostic, you know, atheist. It's really interesting that, you know, we promote ourselves as Christian counselors, and yet people will come to us who, you know, have no interest in Christianity whatsoever. Uh, and I, you know, I always wonder about that, but I really feel in my heart that they're there for a reason. Uh, God put them here, and uh, what we do is I don't preach to people, but I do tell them before they start doing work with me is I'm not going to be able to help myself if something about Jesus Christ comes out of my mouth. As they are all in agreement with it, nobody had nobody ever complained to me about it. And, uh, and I will tell you, we have... I think we've laid the groundwork and seeds in the lives of, you know, some men and women who did not have a faith before they came and worked with us. That's awesome. And I think, you know, fair, fair play, right? You know, you know yourself, you know, your, your faith and it's going to be part of your process. And if someone wants to get on board, they can. And if they don't want to, they don't have to. Um, 
fight. So this is a bit of a side tangent, but before we dive into the understanding and unpacking uh, problematic behaviors and pornography addiction, sex addiction, I wanted to ask you, because I did see in your biography that you have that faith-based element. So from a clinician's perspective, what do you think it is about faith that draws people in and, and grounds people? Because there is something there, you know, whether it's a monotheistic religion or something more diffused, there is an element about faith that people are drawn to. So from a from the perspective of someone who understands the mind and thinks about it deeply, why do you think it provides that psychological safety? Well, I think the fact there's a wow. I mean, we could sit here for days and talk about this conversation, but I think there's several different things. One, we all need this sense of purpose. Purpose is a critical factor in our lives. And I'm not just talking about what we do for a living, but it, it is like, who are we really and why are we here? You know, why, why, what are we supposed to be doing with this life? And people through their faith get an understanding that, yes, you know what, we're not here just to make the best of, you know, our time on this earth. We're not here just to gain a lot of possessions or to, you know, try to have a great time with other people. What we're here for is to be involved in authentic relationship with others and to be able to share our pain and our heartbreak to show people, look, you know what? There's life after this. Um, we're also here to help those who are in need of help. So I think that gives us a great sense of purpose, that idea of faith. But then I think there's also the idea of, you know, there has to be something more. You know, this, this cannot just be it, that we're here, we're doing this, and then we're done. There has to be another driver. And I see that myself, Thomas. I see it just in nature. I look at nature. I look at the world. I look at us, the complexity of us as human beings, and just saying, you know what? This is not chance. It cannot just be chance. It had to be designed. And I think those are just two of many principles, as I said, we could talk about this a long time, um, that are the reasons why people are drawn to their faith. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, I agree, that's a longer conversation, but it's a good thing to think about because faith is one of the most motivational, transformational powers, uh, if maybe that's a word I can use, powers or drivers uh, in people's lives. And and transformational change is one of the, I would say, end goals of, of the book that uh, I read into in preparation for our conversation going deeper. So it's written for a individual who is um, a sexual addict. So whether it's... Um, sex via a uh, screen. So, you know, viewing sex via pornography or uh, paying for sex or sexual acts. And it was really interesting to read the perspective because 
I would say the tone of the book is that you're very empathetic and for that I'm grateful because I think that if someone were to come to you or in that moment or need that book, you know, they would need a lot of empathy and, and grace to, to kind of be held in their process. But you also make a distinction to not excuse the behavior. So I think that I would love to hear more about that line too, because as a clinician, I would imagine you have to hold hold people and also hold them accountable. Right. Well, again, where you're going is you're talking about my, our, our practice or our ministry is aligned with Christian principles. Mm. So therefore, it is the idea that we're all broken. We're broken. I mean, it, it, I don't look at this and say, oh, look at this horrible sin you've committed. Instead, I look at the idea that something went wrong. And I am the, I believe that, you know, when we look at people who are stuck in addiction, and I'm talking about any kind of addiction, there are three core elements that are involved. One is unresolved childhood pain points. Those scars, whether it be trauma or neglect that we've had when we had that when we were younger, that we've just pushed away. We just repressed them. Number two, our inability to sit with emotional pain and distress. We just can't sit with this stuff. So therefore, as a coping mechanism, we learn to run away and distract ourselves. And the final component is that people who are caught up in addiction, and again, we're not talking all, but I'm saying a large majority, are those people that I refer to as emotionally undeveloped. They did not get the guidance and the nurturing they were needed in the early stages of childhood development to teach them how to emotionally connect and bond with other people. So all of these factors I look at and I say, okay, that's the person you are today. That doesn't make you a bad person. It may, it, again, it makes you a broken person. So that's why we're able to give the grace. You know, if I tell the men that I work with, and I work exclusively with men, I say to them, guys, you know what? If you mess up, you come in and you tell me, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to be upset by that. What I will be upset by, if, if I sit there and I say to you, so tell me why you messed up. And you say, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> then it's like, okay, then that means you're not doing the self-reflection that's required of the inner child model that I use. Because that's what it's all about. It is about self-reflection and to understand and answer the why question. Why do I think, feel, and act the way I do? Because I believe, Thomas, if you can answer that question, you are empowered to make some great transformations in your life. Mm, I love it. Okay, let's break those down. So the first one is unresolved experiences or trauma from childhood pain points. Childhood pain points. And in your book, you have nine built out inner children, which I found really interesting. mm -hmm. Yes, those those all started out with the nine reasons why men abuse sex 
over the years of working with men, I, I've started to see these different rationales for what was going on. And so, therefore, I took those nine. And then what happened was, and that's why we were, I would work with them. But then I saw, you know what, what is the biggest deterrent that prevents somebody from getting healed? And that's shame. Mm-hmm. It's their shame. Okay. So how do you address the shame? So what I did was I took a concept that it, it's not my idea. It was something that somebody wrote about about 25 years ago. I can't remember the author's name. But what he did was he externalized the addiction. So therefore, the addict was not you. The addict was externalized. Therefore, you'd be able to talk to your addict. You'd be able to try to deal with your addict. So what I did with my nine reasons was I took them and I put them in, in the form of inner children. And when I did that, I got the same result that I assumed that author who originally, that clinician who originally did this, where guys were like, oh my gosh, I can, I can fix him. I could work with him. I could, I could learn to comfort him and make him better. And it just took a, a, a burden off of their shoulders that there, there's something wrong with them. You can see that sits at the heart of everyone again who has addiction. There's something wrong with me. You know what? I'm bad. I'm, I'm, you know, defective. You know, I don't measure up. And none of that is true. What's true is the fact that you have scars that you never took the time to deal with. Or you're afraid because nobody taught you how to deal with those. And so therefore you run to a set, a place that you know provides an opportunity to just forget, to distract and forget from whatever that emotional distress is. And I think that information, that knowledge is what has so much potential to change people's lives, to understand that there are things that happened to us as kids that need processing and need to need understanding. And once you do start to do that work, you can take control of your life actually, and not be so reactive. And I think I was struck by that in reading, cause I was listening to a, a guru, guru recently who was talking about being less reactive in life and, and not just being pinballed around by all these events and actually instead being, proactive and, or at least not being as influenced by triggers. And part of the process for the inner child model is to identify and understand and really define and and shine a bright light on our emotional triggers, which I found interesting because I feel that could be a good definition. You know, what is an emotional trigger? Because that word has kind of been brought out into the public sphere via political discussions and arguments. But Mm -hmm. from, from an internal perspective, what does that really mean? Like what, what is an emotional trigger? The emotional trigger is an emotion that, that is activated in a negative way to cause us to feel 
an increased level of anxiety. So, for example, you know, let's say something happens and, and I'm at work and my boss just kind of walks right by me and doesn't say anything. Again, minor, a minor thing. But if I grew up in an environment where I always felt I was, you know, left out, nobody, nobody seemed to care, nobody chased me when I was a kid, I often felt very dismissed. Him walking by without saying anything could make me feel, once again, those similar emotions from the past. And with those, with my anxiety increasing, you know, I don't want to sit with that pain. I don't want to sit with that discomfort. So what I may do is decide, oh, you know what, let me grab my phone and go into the men's room or down to my car and just start looking at porn. Or let's say I had a food problem. I've got to run down to the cafeteria and grab some donuts and do something like that. You know, there are many things that people run to to get them away from the pain that they're feeling. So that's, that's what an emotional trigger is. Awesome. Thank you for defining that. And in those situations, it's the inner child who has been triggered and wants to avoid the discomfort, thus motivating the individual to go seek escape through that activity or event, uh, whether it be food or pornography. And I would love to hear too, could you please talk about just the, the, from your experience, whether it's statistically or anecdotally, the scope of this situation, you know, how many men out there are addicted to porn or sex or abusing sex in some kind of disadvantageous way? Yeah. If we, if we stick with the sex addiction or pornography addiction, um, it is estimated that anywhere between six and eight percent of the population struggled with a pornography or sexual addiction. Um, it is estimated that over 60 million men look at pornography at least two times a month. If you break that down, uh, they're thinking it's anywhere between 20 to 25 million who look at pornography on a regular basis. So let's go back to that statistic, you know, again, you know, six to eight percent of the population dealing with this problem. Um, you know, that, that's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are dealing with it. And plus, you also have the uh, comorbid condition uh, situation where people may also not be struggling with pornography or sex, but also maybe have a secondary addiction in the area of, you know, with alcohol, drugs, or something else. It is, it is a big problem, and it's just going to get worse. And the reason it's going to get worse is because for the last several generations, and you were one of those generations, you people grew up in with pornography available at just you know, the click of a button. And we're seeing that kids as young as 10 are being exposed to porn. And that's how they're learning about not just about sex, 
they're finally learning to love. They're, they're thinking this is what it's supposed to be. I heard a story a couple uh, weeks ago. It was very disturbing. Uh, young man, you just, he's uh, 18. He was just starting to date. He was dating this young girl. And they have been dating for about three months. And they decided to become sexual. This was going to be her first encounter and his. And so they were in the midst of doing it. And he reaches out and starts choking her. And she just starts to panic, wondering what's going on here, throws him off, and just starts screaming at him, what are you doing? Why are you trying to, are you trying to kill me? And he goes, no. He goes, I'm not trying to do it. He goes, I thought that's what you would want. That's what I saw in porn. Men would choke women and they would get excited by it. And, and again, that's what it, young boys are learning about love and they're learning about sex through pornography. And that is a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And that's why we're talking about it, right? Because I want to shine a light on this to one, inform, but also to let people know that it's okay and you're not alone if you if you are experiencing this, what is an argument? I mean, I would say, yeah, in, in your, from your perspective, doctor, an argument against sex. Cause you're right. I grew up in a generation or not sex pornography. I grew up in a generation where it was very common. If you had internet access as a teenage boy, you know, porn was available. Everyone knew about it. So let's say there's an adult, out there who has never a man, an adult man who has never considered why it's a bad thing or why they should avoid it. What would you, what would your argument be to, or information you would like to share with them regarding that? Well, well, again, Thomas, we picked a topic that I could sit here for three hours and talk to you. About. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the, 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 thing, the, the thing is this, that there are, there are many, and let, let me let me put this one out there first. Okay, we are starting to see, and uh, this is this is this is something that we've never seen before, but we're starting to see it now. That men, and I'm calling it a men, but anywhere from age 19 to 28, 30, an incredible increase in the incidence of erectile dysfunction. These men who grew up with pornography and chronic masturbation are now having problems engaging in sex with real women. Mm-hmm. And if for, if for a number of reasons, one, the level of stimulation that a real woman creates, which should be intense and high, just doesn't do it. Because porn which is not real sex in many cases, okay? It is just about, because what is real sex? God designed sex to one, the procreation of children, and two, for us to be able to use that to strengthen our bond of emotional intimacy. When it comes to porn, there's no emotional intimacy. Porn, Porn is just about lust. Porn is about the act. It's about, you know, again, they said the money shot, Okay, that's what it's about. And what we're seeing in pornography now, 
Okay. I know. Um, that, that, was a, that, was a, that was a clean way of saying it, right? Um, <laughs> but what, what, what we're talking about now, all right, porn is becoming so violent. It is becoming, it is it be, it's showing the women being abused, being humiliated, being degrading, degraded. And why? Because as one porn producer said, that's what men want. That's what they're looking for. So we're giving them what they want with this. So you go back to the idea of what the problem, one, like we said, we're teaching young boys it's okay to objectify young girls. And we're teaching young girls it's okay to be objectified. So porn, that's what it does. Porn doesn't show you people. Porn shows you objects. So therefore we go out and we look at women and we treat them like objects. Then, as I said before, we have the whole erectile dysfunction. But then we also have the idea of, you know, women involved in pornography. You know, I've, I've had the guys, and there are many, by the way, who think there's nothing wrong with porn. But they're like, well, you know what? They really want it. They have high sex drive, and they just want, they love doing this. And it's a great way for them to make money. And I say, okay, so you know what? Answer this question for me. Simple question. Answer it. Tell me about the time you met that 12-year-old girl and you said to her, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And she said, well, I think I want to take my clothes off in front of a camera and have sex with trained men and women. <laughs> where, did, where did you meet her? <laughs> yeah. Now, now, Thomas, like I, I guess you haven't because you're like sitting there shaking your head. I mean, no, but nobody have met this girl yet that I have talked about. However, I'll say, I'll tell you this. I bet there are some girls out there who could say that, but you know what? Someone or someone have hurt that little girl very, very badly. And she has no sense of self. She has no sense of respect. All she, all, all she thinks of herself is as an object. Something to be used. That's the problem with porn. Well said. Yeah. I mean, we can't know everyone's motivation for, for doing it, but certainly <laughs> I think it's a fair, a fair assumption that, uh, you know, if someone is especially young and, and has that, you know, conception of themselves, then yeah, that's, they've been kind of manipulated or, you know, their 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 emotional child has been hurt in some way. Yeah, Thomas, go back, go, and if you get a chance, and read Google and read about former porn actresses or whatever they call themselves. Go and read their stories. There are literally thousands of them out there, and there's none of them that are good. None of them. So even the naive young woman who says, oh, you know what? Oh, yeah, I guess I could make money doing this. And then they get involved in it. And they, what they're told they, they, the sexual act they need to do is is not what they're, they're going to engage in. Mm-hmm. And what they want to back out, then they're told, well, guess what? You know what? You're not making any money today. They're already halfway into the scene. 
And now they have to, now they're going to say, well, we're not paying you. And she feels trapped. So, so she that's goes another one, supporting, a, supporting a really manipulative industry, if you are watching it. Absolutely. Okay, so the second identifier you, the first one was being the uh, emotional pain as from, from, from being, from childhood. Um, right, and, right. And then what were the other, uh, the other, the other two? The second one, the second, the second one was the inability to sit with emotional discomfort. Yes. And then the last one is the emotionally undeveloped person. So if you look at the one about the emotion with the inability to sit with emotional pain, we're supposed to be taught at a young age, and this is what they, they actually tie in together. We're supposed to be taught at a young age how to become emotionally connected and bonded with others. When that doesn't happen, that is when we become emotionally undeveloped. So therefore, you know, this idea of sitting with emotional distress. So let's, let's say you're a young kid and you, you know, your the friend next door, your neighbor next door took your Nerf gun and broke it. And you come home and you're crying to your mother and your, and your father. And it's like, Oh, Bobby took my nerf gun. He broke it. And I can't believe he broke it. And your father, you're, you're looking for comfort. That's what you're looking for. But mm. instead, your father's like, what did I tell you about lending your toys to somebody else? What the heck is wrong with you? Are you stupid? I told you not to do that. And now you did it. Well, guess what? Now you're going to have to live with the consequences of it. You know what? If you're going to be that big of an idiot, go to your room. So now, now you've had this emotional distress, the original one, which is somebody broke your toy. And now you, now you're sitting with more pain. And that pain is that it's my fault, that I'm stupid, I can't do anything right. So a kid sitting with all of this distress, he's like, what do I do with this? And children can't sit with high levels of distress because that anxiety is ultimately going to turn into depression because anxiety and depression are cousins. So what the kid does, not having a lot of worldly experiences and being more emotionally based in his thinking than being cognitively based. He comes up with one solution, the one solution of what to do with this pain. And it is an amazing solution that this kid comes up with. I won't think about it. I won't think about it. So, all right, how did he do that? He has to distract himself. Too much food, too much television, too much video game, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Too much fantasy in his own head. Not sexual fantasy, just fantasy. So now you take that coping mechanism, great coping mechanism for a young child, and we take it into our teen years, and then we take it into our adult years. So therefore, now the pain... I never sit with my pain. Instead, I go and I medicate it to something that will help me feel better. So that's number two. And the last one we talked about was the fact of the un, uh, the emotionally undeveloped person. 
So now let's go back to those early stages of childhood. In those stages, okay, I am supposed to be taught by my parents, okay, on different things that will help me to be emotionally mature. For example, trust. I, I should learn how to trust. Well, what does that look like? That means that I can wander away from my mom or my dad, but yet if I look back, I know they're there. So therefore, I can go wander, I can go explore, and not be fearful that I will be left behind. Another one is, I've got to learn how to emotionally regulate. I have all these emotions that are coming at me that I'm feeling now as a child. And my parents both to teach me how to sit with those and process them. They're going to teach me how to identify my emotion. What do I really feel? They're going to teach me how to put words to it. This way, I'm not just always angry or crying. They're going to instead, let's put words to all of that. They're going to teach me how to be empathetic, how to put myself in somebody else's position to understand where they're coming from. And they're going to teach me how to be attuned. That I can sit and I can say, wow, you know what? Something's off with Susie today. She doesn't seem to be in a great spot. Let me go and and talk to her to see how she's doing. So all those things we're supposed to learn, which again, allows us to emotionally bond. Well, if we miss out on those steps, which we do, because perhaps our parents don't know, they're, they're emotionally undeveloped. Or perhaps they're very distracted, or there's a lot of abuse in the house or neglect. There's many, many reasons for it. Or the parents die and you're in foster care, jumping around from family to family. You don't develop these skills. And without those skills, again, we're always looking for, there's a void that we have, and we're looking to fill that void. But the problem is we don't know what that void is and what that void really is. If we're looking for emotional connection and development. Well said. And I, my motivation too, for starting this podcast, I think was kind of identifying that consequence of the emotionally undeveloped man and seeing that person in myself and in others around me and trying to bring conversations like this to light because this is not something that's acknowledged or if it is acknowledged, there's not a identifying why it's a problem. You know, maybe if you take a a poll of 10,000 men in the United States, some percentage of them would identify as uh, not sitting with their emotions or or not uh, that, you know, that they, that they avoid sitting with emotional discomfort, say, but then I don't think, many of them would have an understanding of why that's bad or why they should be motivated to try to change that. If you know what I mean. Right. It's, it's, you know, most, the one book, right. The, the word that appears in my book most often, and I'm, I'm exaggerating though, is oblivious. <laughs> We're oblivious to it. Yeah. Yeah. We are. We, we just think, we just think, you know what? You know, you know, you're dating and a woman's like, you know, you don't talk. Why don't you talk that much? Why don't you bring up conversation? You don't ask me about things. How come you're not curious about anything? 
You know, how come you don't, you don't be more proactive in demonstrating how much you care? And it's like, I don't know. It's just the way I am. This is me. You know, I'm a nice guy. I just don't, you know, I, that, I don't have that muscle that developed. And it's true. But the problem is we're, we are oblivious. We're oblivious to this. Therefore, we have a low emotional IQ. You know, we lack mindfulness. We're very inwardly focused. These are all things that what I did in the new book, Why Men Struggle to Love, if I found and identified 14 what I call blind spots. These are things that prevent a man from being able to engage in a healthy emotional relationship. A lot of them are very hypersensitive. They're hypersensitive to criticism. They're hypersensitive to rejection. Uh, they're hypersensitive to being falsely accused. And so therefore, uh, did you, did you finish the milk? Well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? What did I No, I didn't finish the milk. Why are you accusing me of finishing the milk? I would have, and it just, they take something so simple yeah. and it just blows out of proportion with all of it. So again, you, you raise a great point. It is that idea we are oblivious. This is just the way I am. I hate that mindset. <laughs> <laughs> Literally makes my blood boil. I hope, I hope all. I hope all men, I hope all men do. And that, that's what I love about your podcast because your podcast lines up exactly with the book, Why Men Struggle to Love. You're looking to provide education and guidance about how men can transform themselves. Again, what are you really talking about? You're talking about that path of sanctification. Becoming more Christ-like. That's what you're really talking about. And ultimately, that's what this book is. This book is sitting here and explains, one, this is why you are the way you are. Two, these are the things that need to be done. These 14 blind spot things you have to work at, work on to soften, to lower or de- desensitize them so that you can be more engaging with people. But more importantly than that, Thomas, is so that you can transform your heart and you can stop existing and you can start living. Mm. Get it. Get it, Doc. <laughs> I love it. Also, just to clarify, I, I listen to a um I listen to a bunch of rugby podcasts and one of them they always laugh about when people say literally or literally so it does not literally make my blood boil as i said it uh metaphorically makes <laughs> makes my blood boil <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and i think the thing about it that frustrates me so much is that as men we are in positions of privilege in the society we are in a patriarchal we are in a patriarchy so that's why I, it pisses me off because I'm like, dude, we're in a position of privilege and we have the ability actually to really impact people very well and actually pull others up and use this, you know, this, this manhood we've been given for as a force of good. But instead, you know, someone's going to let themselves this abjectly accept being unaware and, and casually hurting people or having a wife who is an amazing loving, intuitive, beautiful person who is just kind of 
not treated well or, or you know what I mean? Isn't, isn't made to feel special mm-hmm. or, or kids, for example, who, yeah, could have had this beautiful upbringing where they're taught to be intuitive and emotional, but instead, you know, they live in fear of, of being yelled at, you know, or, or, or worse. So, right. you know, I just, I just, I just see the potential of life and the potential of, of what each person can be. And then I see where we are and it's just, <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> But we need to be we need to be very aware that we have the potential to cause great harm to people. And, and I'm not talking about just physical harm. I'm talking about we have the ability to really devastate people's hearts. And see, that's something that my wife and I, we see every day. We see women who come in who are just heartbroken. Because they're wondering, why? Why would he do this to me? I thought he was a nice guy. And the thing is, he is a nice guy. But again, he's searching for something that he doesn't know what he's searching for. What he's searching for is true emotional connection. He just doesn't know how to get it. And he's now confused it. He confused emotional intimacy with physical intimacy. So therefore, he feels that, you know what, I will show you how much I love you and how much I care for you by being physical with you. And I never feel more love than when you're physical with me. But over time, what that also does, it makes the partner, their spouse, start to feel used. So it's like whenever I come near you, if I just want to hold you and touch you, I can't because you're going to want you're going to want that sex from me. So then, therefore, they start to pull away. And then, again, they leave the guy feeling more of that hurt and that pain. So, therefore, they continue. They just exacerbate the whole situation and run away even further into more porn or actually stepping outside the marriage. Be the change, men. That's my takeaway. Awesome. Awesome, Doc. Well, we'll jump over to the... Spark by Seek Discomfort Conversation Game. And um, yeah, thank you for thank you for that. I'm excited to kind of listen back and process this because, yeah, man, it's just, I don't know. I, I understand too that like this mindset I have, you know, is largely benefited by or was enabled by a healthy upbringing. You know, I acknowledge that. So I understand why you know, other people might not have a similar mindset, but it also, I think for me, like the, I can be empathetic about that, but also if it comes to kind of passing the trash or then if say someone was hurt, but they continue to hurt other people, that's when for me that it's, the, the line is drawn of like, okay, I understand that you have trauma and you've been abused, but it's not okay just to replicate it and pass it along. Agreed. Yeah. So thanks for listening to my rant. <laughs> okay. Uh, so is your, what month is your birthday in doc? Whoever's birthday is uh, first is goes first. The first book you're saying? Uh, no. What month is your birthday in? Oh, what month is my birthday? October. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Your birthday is after mine. So I'll go first. Okay. So I'll get a question and then you'll have a different question. 
Okay. All right. My question is, when, is the, when was the last time I tried something for the first time? Mm. I feel like I try new stuff all the time. I I made muscles for the first time recently. Oh, I love was, muscles. Oh, it was so easy. It was delicious and a very mm-hmm. simple, a very simple meal to cook. And yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm here in uh, Saint Martin, and I've been ripping around on a on a moped with Kendall, my girlfriend. So that's been that's been good. I guess that's new. Okay, here's your question. It's on the screen. Okay, here's my question. Yep, I can't. Oh, let's see. Name something you cannot live without. <clears throat> oh, wow. What can I live with? I can't. I cannot live. I cannot live without being able to connect, love, worship, and be in relationship with my Lord and Savior. I can't live without that. You know, at first I was going to say my wife. I can't live without my wife. But you know what? If I said, yeah, as much as I would hate to even think about that, if anything were to happen to her, you know, I could go on. But if God were to somehow depart from me, which I know he never would, but if he did, that would be just crushing. Mm. Absolutely crushing. See, I've never thought of that before. <laughs> I never thought mm. what it would be like if you had to, that God just withdrew from you. But yes, yeah, that, that's my answer. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And and thank you for a wonderful conversation. I, I hope that folks listened and, and learned and opened their minds and hearts to why it's important to process the emotional baggage of childhood and all of, of, of the child and also to think about why it matters, why this is important to not go around hurting people and to be a little more self-aware. It's self-reflection. It's all about self-reflection. Continue on that pathway to understand why. Why do I think, feel, and act the way I do? Think, feel, and act the way I do. Awesome. Awesome. And where can folks uh, find your books if they're interested? Uh, They are. Yep. They're available exclusively on Amazon. Uh, Going Deeper, How the Inner Child Impacts Your Sexual Addiction. And as you said, and so many other people do, that it is not just about sexual addiction. You can, it's, It could be just how the inner child impacts your life. And then the other book, the new book, is Why Men Struggle to Love, Overcoming Relational Blind Spots. As I said, they're both available exclusively at Amazon. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you this morning. And yeah, good luck with the work you're doing and keep it up. I'm, I'm sure you're helping a lot of people. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for the time, Thomas. I really appreciate it. For sure. <laughs>